Those of you that know me well know that the way to my heart is to feed me a nice meal. And those that work with me know that I will help you out in any way if the idea of food is attached to it. It doesn't matter what it is, I'll do it. And I debated on whether or not I should do this, but what I'm going to pop up on the screen for you is the top 10 restaurants for 2015 according to NOLA.com. Okay, so we're going to pop these up here one at a time. I want you to make a tally by everyone that you've attended and eaten at. Okay, here we go. Let's start the list. Brightson's, Clancy's, Commander's, Dominica. Can't pronounce that one. Keep going. Herb Saint, La Petite. Pesh? Yeah, I think that's how you say it. Restaurant August and Square Root. All right, now I did this in the first service, and there were three people that had been to all ten of these places. Anybody want to be brave enough this morning and raise your hand and say that you've been to all ten of these establishments? All right, we have one in the back, Miss Amelia Leonardi. All right, (laughs) big surprise there. And then we got two people. Okay, this is great. And the deal that I made with the people in the first service is if you'll come and find me at the end of the service, you're welcome to take me and my family to one of these locations. <laughs> Anytime. It doesn't have to be today. We can schedule it when your schedule is convenient for you, okay? And I'd like for my parents to raise their hand. They're in the back right there, mom and dad. So they're in town, so we're going to be plus two for lunch, okay? <laughs> so my parents said they were coming to hear me preach, but the reality is they came to see the grandkids. They're not, you know, they can watch at home. So... We are talking about food this morning, and I hope I didn't lose everyone by getting you thinking about your lunch plans, but we're looking at the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Now, Jesus has done all sorts of miracles. We know this. What makes this miracle unique is the fact that all four gospel accounts mention this miracle. There is no other miracle mentioned across the four gospels. This is the one. So this is like the big miracle. Matthew mentions it, Mark, Luke, John. They all mention it. So it's got some significance. And we're going to be reading in John 6, starting in verse 1. And even though Jesus is meeting the physical needs of his audience here, he's got something else going on that I want us to look at this morning. Starting in verse 1, it'll be on the screens as we read. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down. About 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, 
Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. This story is not just about food. One of the first things that you'll notice in this passage when you look at verse 3 is that Jesus sits down with his disciples, okay? So they have left one setting, they move to another, and he sits down with his disciples on a mountain. Now, why would he do that? Well, Jesus sits down with his disciples to debrief what has just happened and to prepare them for what is about to happen. So I ask you the question this morning, who are you sitting down with? Now, I know this question ends in a preposition, and that's a no-no, but just roll with it. Who are you sitting down with this morning? You see, as I understand Jesus' ministry, from the time he began ministering, it was his intention to take a small group of men, teach them about his character and his nature, teach them the scriptures, and then for them to be able to go out and do that with other people. After all, the main criteria for getting into the New Testament canon, when the early church was forming it and trying to decide which books do we include, which books do we not, it was apostolicity. The idea that the book must have a connection to one of Jesus' apostles or disciples. So Matthew, disciple of Jesus. John, disciple of Jesus. Peter, disciple of Jesus. Paul, he knew Peter, he knew the disciples. Luke, he knew Paul. Every book, other than the book of Hebrews, has some connection to the apostles. Why would that be important? Because the apostles spent all their time with Jesus. You see, the church, as an institution, is most successful when we are sitting down with other people and teaching them the scriptures. Not in a small group setting, not in a Sunday morning service, when we are intentional about discipling people to understand Jesus Christ more. You know all the statistics. You've heard them before. The church in America is plateauing or declining. It is plateauing and declining because we are not systematically discipling new believers in Jesus Christ. Now, I realize as I say that this morning that many of us in this room might have not had anyone sit down with us and disciple us. I realize that. I accept it. And by the grace of God, somehow he continued to work in your life and you made it. And you're studying the scriptures and you're living your life for Jesus. And that's great. But the intention, since Jesus was put on this earth, he took 12, he taught them everything he knew, and from there... The church of Jesus Christ multiplied like wildfire. Now, I'm sure you've probably seen this before, but if you were to make it a goal this year to say, I'm going to lead one person to Jesus Christ and disciple them. If that was your goal for 2016, you led one to Christ, you discipled them, and you challenged them to go and lead someone else to Christ. By the end of the first year, you can do the math, two new believers. Year two, you'd have four. Year three, eight. Year four, 16. Let's keep doing the math. By the time you get completed with your 33rd year, you would have 8.5 billion 
Christians. Just so you know, the world population is 7.6 billion people. Now, I realize this morning as I say that, that at some point, everybody in America is going to become a Christian if we did this, and we'd have to move to Africa and China and Asia to continue our work. I understand that. And I know it's an exaggeration. But let's just take America. Around 322 million people currently living in the United States of America. Doing that same process. In the 27th year, sometime in the 27th year, every person would be a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, I realize you can't share the gospel with an infant, and I realize that some people will reject the truth. Scripture teaches us this. But I ask you this morning, and I challenge you as I challenge myself, answer this question. Who are you sitting down with? Who are you discipling? The church is most effective when we are doing this. And Jesus did it with Philip. And as we keep reading, what I want you to see is that you need to be ready for the tests when they come your way. As we read in the passage, poor Philip. Jesus calls on Philip basically to be his dummy, okay? Philip, what's it going to take to feed all these people? Uh, let's see, God, let me carry the two 5,000 times. We don't have the money to do this. Jesus is sitting right next to Philip, and he's completely clueless about the fact that he serves the God of the universe that could do whatever he wanted to do, however he wanted to do it. So Philip fails this test, okay, miserably. I want you to turn in your Bible real quick to Acts chapter 8. Typically, I don't like to make you turn because I know it's hard to follow, but turn to Acts chapter 8 real quick because Jesus is not done with Philip. Okay, in John chapter 6, remember, he fails the test. Philip, how are we going to feed all these people? I don't know, God. We, we don't have enough money to do this. All right? He's still a baby in Christ. Paul tells us that when you're a child in Christ, you crave what? The milk. And as you move in your progression in your relationship with Christ, you begin to eat the solid food. So in John 6, he's on milk. We get to Acts chapter 8. Philip has been discipled by Jesus. Jesus is gone. He's in heaven and now, it's the disciples' job to expand the kingdom of God. Look at what happens here to Philip. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 26, it's on the board. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And here's the beautiful part. And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. Philip was now ready to pass the test that he failed in John chapter 6. 
Why did he pass the test here and fail it there? Because at the time, he was a baby in Christ. When we move to Acts chapter 8, God is ready to give him a task that he will pass. How did Philip pass this test? Because Jesus sat with him. And now Philip sits with the eunuch. And your parents sat with you. And my parents sat with me. And now I'll sit with my kids. If we ever get to the point when we're not sitting with other people, the church will die. That's the formula for the death of a church. Not discipling other people. And at this point, Philip is able to pass the test because Jesus sat down with him. As we keep moving along in the passage, he tests more of his disciples and he gets them involved right here. And he says, you know what? I want you to watch me work. And this is what happens. In John's account, we're told that 5,000 people are fed, correct? Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, all four gospel accounts mention this miracle. We don't have time to look at it, but if you flip over to Matthew, what you'll see is Matthew tells us that Jesus fed 5,000 men in addition to women and children. So using that logic, let's just say half the men had wives, some of them had children. We don't have a hard number here, but we're looking at probably closer to 10 to 15,000 people that Jesus is feeding. It's not just 5,000. Now, I read commentaries this week and some sources, skeptics trying to say that this isn't really a miracle of Jesus multiplying the food. It's just a miracle of the people sharing So there's five loaves and two fish, and they just share the food. That's just silly. 15,000, 10 to 15,000 people are not fed with five loaves and two fish unless you give each individual a crumb on their plate. But we know that didn't happen because the text tells us that the people were full. In addition to being full, the text tells us that 12 baskets were left over. Now, I'm not a numerologist. I don't get into the significance of every single number in Scripture. I do think some have meaning and some don't. But I do find it very interesting here in John 6 about how many baskets are left over. John tells us 12 baskets. That would be 12 disciples. Jesus allows them to participate in this miracle Because the text does tell us that he sent his disciples out to collect the fragments. So in my mind, I like to think that each disciple could take one basket of leftovers and bring it back. You see, Jesus allowed his disciples to feel, to taste, and to see his power. I like to think that they took this basket, and this is just complete speculation here. I like to think they took that basket back to their house and put it up on a shelf. And when they began to wonder if God was still working in their lives or in their families' lives, when persecution came their way, I like to think that they could see that picnic basket up there on their shelf and remember how God worked. Not only does God work here, but he shows us that he never forgot where his power source came from. Text tells us that before he distributed the food, he blessed it. He went to his heavenly Father and he blessed the food. God in the flesh still understood 
that his source of power came from above. And he modeled that for his disciples. And he models it for you and I. Any good that we do in this world, we better remember to remember that our power source comes from our Father in heaven. He is the one that allows us to do any good that we do. Every one of us that's a believer in Jesus Christ, when we decided to follow him, whether we realized it at the time or not, what we told God was, and what we've told Jesus, is that I am going to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow you daily. That's what we said. Now I realize that salvation is a process, and there are times in our lives when we do that, and there are times in our life when we don't. But what we've said is, we give up the right to be in charge of our lives. That means there can be no segment of our life that we can keep for ourselves. It all stems and flows back to the power source, which is God the Father. So the disciples watch God work. And then, what's so beautiful as this text closes here, what we see the people say is significant. Look at what they say here in the very last verse that we read. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. We know that John's gospel is concerned about promoting the divinity of Jesus Christ. That is, that he is not just some other man, he is divine. And so the first 12 chapters in John's gospel are called the book of signs. He's showing you all of these signs and miracles to prove to his audience, to prove to us that Jesus is who he says he is. He is divine. And the people... When they see Jesus perform this miracle, they say, yes, he is the prophet who is to come in the world. Jesus is still working. He is still performing signs and miracles in this world today. He is alive. His word is active. So maybe that car wreck that you avoided on I-10 the other day wasn't just an accident. Or maybe that spot that the doctor found on that MRI and you went back to do it again and he said it was just a glitch, that you're fine. Maybe that was God. Maybe that family member, that friend that you've been praying for, their salvation for 20 years, and God saves them. I want you to know your prayers work. And that God is working. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we looking for him at work around us? You see, our human nature is to dismiss the supernatural, right? Ah, that's just luck of the draw, chance, random. All of us in this room know we serve a supernatural God. And as the song says, the same power that crushed the enemy is the same power that lives in you and me. Church, we got to stop selling Jesus Christ short. He is working. He is active. 
He's doing miracles. He's doing signs. And we need to give him the credit and the glory for it. we got to quit walking around powerless. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us. And because he lives inside of us, we have the power of God inside of us. And so the disciples in this passage, the people in this passage, they see God work and inside the disciples and inside these people, they realize, hey, we can have that same power if we'll deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow Jesus. If you keep reading towards the end of John chapter 6, Jesus kind of debriefs this whole passage here. We don't have time to read it this morning. But he says a couple of things, and I shared it during the Lord's Supper. Number one, that he is the bread of life. That he who partakes of him will never go hungry. And he says those who partake of his blood will never thirst again. We look for satisfaction in a lot of things. In our jobs, in our families, in our sports teams, the amount of money that we make. And those provide satisfaction for us. Right? They do. There's nothing wrong with finding satisfaction in those things. But to find your purpose and your meaning and your satisfaction through those things completely is a lie from the enemy. There is no true fullness, satisfaction in life apart from the bread of life. He is the one that gives us complete satisfaction. So this morning I leave us with two, two challenges. One's a question and one's a challenge. Number one, do you have the bread of life? Do you have the bread of life? Or are you still clinging to the success of your career, your family, the amount of money you make to bring you satisfaction in life? It will bring you satisfaction, but only temporary. At some point in time, it's going to go away. So do you have the bread of life? And secondly, who are you and I sitting down with? I went to a conference just a couple of weeks ago where a man was speaking about how he structures out his day. And I thought I was type A until I met this guy. 8 to 10 emails, 10 to 12 appointments, 12 to 2. Even if he's on his way to a lunch appointment, he makes sure that he makes calls on the way there. Right, he's got it down. He's very successful, so I'm not, I'm not against what he's doing. And he said, you know what happens if somebody walks into my office and they come at a time when I don't have the appointment times for them? You know what he does? He remains standing behind his desk. Now, what does standing tell the other person? That I'm not really going to have time for you. All right, he does this so he can keep track of his day. But you see, standing gives away certain body language. But when you and I decide that we're going to sit down with somebody else, what that shows is, I have time for you. Amen. What you're going through matters to me. 
what Jesus has taught me, I'm now going to teach you. Sitting down with people shows them that we have time for them. Are you making time to disciple other people? Will you pray with me? Father, this miracle is so much bigger than the feeding of the 5,000. This is about the bread of life. God, convict us for thinking that we can go through life without teaching other people, sharing our faith with other people. God, I know your spirit is still alive and working, and I know that we can reach people with the gospel and teach them the truths of Scripture. Help us to be intentional about it. Lord, your word is active and alive. Speak to us through it as we study it, as we meditate on it. God, we are thankful for the gift of salvation that we get through Jesus Christ. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.